Embrace every moment, honor your creativity, and know that artists are heroes because they hold up mirrors to the world. And it is a noble listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Algott. And coming up today in episode 284, part two of my conversation with actor, director, and producer Judy Ann Elder. And in today's episode, we pick up with Judy Ann's move to Los Angeles in an era that was not unlike today in many ways. It was an era of exploitation films, of racism, and of an industry that can overwhelm even the boldest and most talented artists. And today, Judy Ann shares what saved her, how the challenges she faces both have and haven't changed over the years, and perhaps most powerfully, what she's learned as a breast cancer survivor. Stay with us. Support for this episode of Inside Acting comes from Rehearsal Pro, the current version of Rehearsal, the essential app for actors. And it's, of course, available in the iTunes App Store. Look, if you want to learn your lines, be off book for your auditions, explore your character and make stronger choices and do a whole lot more, go right now to Rehearsal.pro slash IAP to learn about all the great new features in the new version of Rehearsal, the groundbreaking app designed by actors for actors. That's Rehearsal.pro slash IAP. Episode 284. AJ, how are you? Uh, I'm okay. <laughs> you know how I am. Don't start that. Put a little stuffed up, are you? Mm-hmm. Little stuffed little up. Little stuffed up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Little, allergy, little, little snot in the uh, the nose cavity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, it's funny because you, you you like started out doing Stewie from Family Guy, but then you ended up doing... <laughs> Then you end up doing the Brian Gumble impersonation from Family Guy. Oh, did I? <laughs> oh God, it's so funny that this. I can't remember who's being interviewed by him, but he just sits there the whole time and goes, "Hmm, hmm, 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 hmm." Um, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I just uh, maybe it's the heat. Uh, it's it's probably it's the heat. It's global warming. Uh, that's what's happening. Um. I've been waking up almost every day with like allergies and then by, I don't know, mid morning, midday, they're gone. It's very strange, but, um, got these like ugh, Chinese, uh, allergy magical pills that, um, have been doing wonders, uh, except for this morning, of course, cause they knew I was recording, you know, like F you AJ. So, hi, everyone. This is AJ's nose. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of something I read recently. This is me always plugging something I read somewhere. But uh, that book, Thrive, that I've talked about by Brendan Brazier. It's a yeah. It's a, a nutrition guide for athletes, vegan athletes, vegan nutrition guide. And uh, he, there's a story in there where he talks about every spring his allergies would flare up. And, you know, he was like, could not figure out, like, what was going on. And it was really affecting his training and his his life. And 
And anyway, through a series of like self experiments, he realized it was because since it would get warmer during the spring, he would ramp up his training. And as he ramped up his training, he would drink more and more of like, you know, those sort of sugary, sweet sport drinks, you know, Gatorade and Powerade. And one of the main ingredients in those is, um, like corn-based sweeteners, like fructose or high fructose corn syrup, that kind of thing, corn syrups and things like that. And so basically he realized that allergies weren't the problem. He had a food sensitivity to corn products. And as soon as he cut those drinks out of his diet, his allergies completely went away. So just something to think about. I mean, I'm not saying uh, that's what's going on with you, but, but it is. And, what's that? It is? <laughs> it is. It totally is. No, I mean, maybe, maybe not. But I was I was going to say that, oh, God, I'm, I'm laughing because you're like corn products. So last night, <laughs> oh, God, this is embarrassing. So whatever, we're it's the podcast. We talk about all kinds of stuff on here. Um, I I had a feeling when I woke up this morning and felt this way, even though, like I said, it's been happening a lot lately, but it was particularly bad this morning. I had a feeling it had to do with what I ate last night, and uh, and now I'm convinced uh, 100%. But last night, uh, Jasmine and I were being admittedly lazy, and we decided that uh, a good, lazy, but uh, uh, quote-unquote healthy uh, dinner for us would be... Um, organic corn chips and guacamole so <laughs> that was my dinner last night and i'm paying for it um and jasmine is shaking her head at me right now um so yeah thanks trev for the uh, i'm not being sarcastic i'm legitimately thanking you because that is a confirmation of what my suspicion already was um and and thanks to uh, mr Thri- what's his name again the thrive guy brendan brazier Thanks, Brendan. Uh, appreciate that. <laughs> Interesting, man. Do you think you might have a corn sensitivity? Um, I think we all. I think corn is like. I think any sort of grain. Uh, I think we all have a sensitivity in. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's not true. But look, wheat, corn, like all these cereal grains that we that we grow um, instead of you know actual vegetables. Um, I think that we just get like too much of it in our diet over the course of our lives and end up having some kind of, uh, sensitivity to it. It's why people like sort of become, uh, gluten intolerant. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I have become gluten intolerant and this is like really bugging me because I love bread (laughs) and I, I realize that it's not necessarily wheat flour. It's enriched wheat flour. I sort of figured Mm. this out. And so I have this theory that's been sort of developing in my mind over the years that it's not the plant, so to speak. Like every, there, there's so many paleo people that talk about, you know, the, the different um, chemical makeup of the plant and the different toxins that they have. And, and maybe that's true. I, I don't know. I'm not a botanist. But I do think that when you have to mass produce a single strain or a single species, a huge monoculture operation, and you just douse that shit with chemicals and herbicides and all this stuff, and then you process the fuck out of it and then sell it en masse to the consumers, of course you're going to have problems. And I, I have never had a gluten sensitivity ever, ever in my life until about three years ago. All of a sudden, I can't eat enriched wheat flour anymore. I don't think my body changed all that much. Like, from one year to the next for me to suddenly develop this raging gluten insensitivity. I think it's the crops. I think it's the GMOs and I think it's the pesticides and the herbicides. 
What happens to you, like when you when you eat it? A little bit of brain fog, definitely like belly bloat, and oh, hundred percent. Those are the two. You just name like the top two symptoms. Yeah, yeah, and achy joints. Really, like my knees and elbows and shoulders would just get achy. Like, like I'll feel like I'm fifty years old. And when I don't have it, when I'm just like a rice and beans thing or whatever, I don't have a corn issue yet. But um, I don't eat a lot of corn stuff. But, but um, but yeah, I, I like where did that come from? Like I was in Florida, you know, a few months ago for um, my brother's memorial, and we went out to dinner afterwards, and I ate tons of bread, no problems at all. So it's like it's not bread, so to speak. It's not wheat, so to speak. It's it's a specific kind, and I think it's when it's produced in a specific way. So. And one yeah. of those things where I think if you pay for the local sort of high quality, like certified organic stuff, you are doing yourself a favor and the planet a favor because you're you're actually eating something that nature designed rather than some guys <laughs> in a lab. There's a couple. I, I should make them uh, my pick of the week at some point. There are a couple of um, bread, like gluten-free vegan bread alternatives that are actually pretty damn good. Um I surprised Jasmine on the morning of her birthday by making one of her favorite meals that she cannot have because she can't have eggs and she can't have gluten. Uh, so one of her favorite meals is like a big no-no, um, which is French toast. I think I saw a picture of this on your social media. Yeah, I, I found yeah. this like vegan or, or like egg-free, gluten-free bread and I made her like vegan gluten-free french toast and it was it was good like i it was really tasty i i i dug it um and uh, and of course she did too but uh you know it's possible uh just like you said trev like you are you are doing yourself a favor um it might seem silly to kind of you know uh what am i what am i trying to say like uh to spend i don't know some people are like oh, it's more money and blah 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 whatever yeah. yeah welcome to america but um <clears throat> it's it's worth it yeah what's the saying you can pay the grocery bill now or the doctor later oh. or the medical bill later oh. I, and I'm, I'm totally on board with that but i i that's kind of the reason i i tend to go really heavy on the vegetables or one of the reasons is because i have a hard time justifying a six dollar loaf of like gluten-free egg-free everything free bread when I can just go buy 16 pounds of carrots for 50 cents, you know, <laughs> where are you I mean, buying your carrots? I know. Tell me about it, man. 16 pounds. You buy that shit. Cent- in, I mean, I'm exaggerating obviously, but you can like, if you buy in bulk vegetables in bulk at like farmer's markets and stuff, dude, you can get so much food. It's unbelievable. The farmer's market, like I don't, we've been getting, uh, produce from like even whole foods whole foods is supposedly like well who knows now they bought got bought by amazon but um whole foods has such a an amazing uh selection of what you would think would be high quality produce it lately has not been lasting very long in the fridge we did one maybe two trips to the farmer's market and all of a sudden it lasted for like a week or 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 two weeks like for like it just way longer Mm. uh than the stuff from the grocery store and so yes so go to your go to your local farmer's market this has been an extended commercial (laughs) for your local (laughs) farmer's market welcome back to inside acting yeah so so we've learned a lot in these past nine minutes here yeah what what is uh what's new anything new in your world this week any auditions or meetings or things to speak of 
Uh, not really. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am, I do have to say I'm getting a little frustrated, um, about, I've been trying to get, um, uh, an agent in, in Los Angeles cause I only have my New York agent still. And, um, I'm running into the issue of not having, uh, enough or good enough, uh, tape and it's just frustrating. It's that it's that actor catch twenty two. We've talked about it on the podcast before. Yeah. It's not like it's surprising to me, but it's just frustrating. Um, it's like you need good tape to get an agent. Uh, you don't need an agent to get opportunities, but it helps to get more uh, more and better opportunities. And then you need those opportunities to get jobs. You need those jobs to get tape. And yeah. round and round we go. Has this been specific feedback that you've been getting that like you've been meeting with people and they said, oh, you know, we, 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 we like you, we like your look, but we need more tape. Or is this just something that people have been telling you or that, or that is just sort of common knowledge in the industry? It's sort of both. It's sort of both. There is a specific example of a agency that I've been courting for a bit and and basically the last you know communication between them and my manager was um you know uh one guy at this agency is excited but he doesn't think he can get the rest of the team on board without more better tape gotcha gotcha all right so what's what's the uh if you don't mind me putting you on the spot here what's the action plan um well i every time i see i've got a couple of ideas um every time i see um Miguel and Michael from uh, Rapid Reels, we talk about, you know, getting me involved more there and um, and doing um, more featured actor stuff with them. Um, and, you know, I'm at the point where I may actually consider investing and in, like just paying them for a for a reel um, mm-hmm. or something real material, at least a couple of good scenes. Um, and uh what was the other idea that I had? Um, oh, uh, it's not really an action plan for tape, but I, you know, I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Jasmine and in a moment of frustration, I was like, Oh, I should just move back to New York (laughs) because, you know, I have the agent boots on the ground over there. And, uh, and that means more, opportunity so yeah and that's been a thought uh, of yours for a while you've been considering that as yeah. an option yeah yeah so it's it's sort of it's both of those things okay yeah our um casting director workshops and that kind of thing just completely off the table for you i know that 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 domain of the industry is sort of up in the air right now but i'm curious if that's been something you've thought about as well i mean i still do Howie Gold's workshop, which we've talked about on the podcast before. And that's, uh, that's about as far as I want to go, I think in that direction, just because of how, I don't know, uh, how icky that whole experience can feel sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever get that experience in Howie's class? I've been to Howie's class. I've taken it several times. Um, I didn't continue with it for a number of reasons, but, uh, the idea for people who aren't familiar is that it's, it's it's Howie, who's uh, the guy who sort of orchestrates everything, and a bunch of great, great actors and showrunners and directors and writers. I mean, these are like big working people come in every week, usually it's a different person every week, and they bring 
you know, some current or current-ish script, so something that's actually in production or was recently in production or will be in production, and uh, the actors get up and, and read it. And it's almost like, it's less like scene work and more like, let's do a, an improv short play of the material we have here, and then you get direct feedback from these industry people. But they're not always casting directors. They're, they're people that work in all areas. Uh, so back to my question about it, do you ever get that icky feeling? with any of those guests in Howie's workshop? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's happened. I literally can't think of an example. So I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't, sure. I don't yeah. like to speak in absolutes. So I'm not going to say, no, it's never happened, but I can't think of a specific example. I think the thing that prevents it from happening in that class is that the, the people who are there are as invested as we are because nine times out of 10, it's their material. Yeah, yeah. Or material that they're working on or material that they're producing or material that they're about to direct or something like that. Yeah. As opposed to a casting director who's coming in with just some scenes because they're getting paid and they're just handing actors scenes and they're just like, uh-huh. <laughs> just kind of going through the motions, which has been my experience a lot when I go to um, CD workshops. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, good question. Cool, man. Cool. Well, yeah. Glad to hear it. And and your new headshots are, like I said last episode, are just freaking phenomenal. So uh, good things ahead. Good things ahead. I'm certain of it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Support for this episode of Inside Acting is also brought to you in part by VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best Voiceover Training one, two, three, four years in a row. Visit vo2gogo.com slash start to get access to a free getting started in voiceover online class that'll help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's vo, the number two, gogo.com slash start. And of course, don't be afraid to check out uh, the sort of companion course. It's not really a companion course. I shouldn't call it that, but camera ready you, which is um, pretty, pretty, pretty awesome. Check it out. Camera ready And that's you as in university camera ready No questions for this episode, but we do have a nice, beautifully in-depth segment with Judy Ann to wrap up our interview series with her. Should we jump in? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a little bit longer than the first segment. So, uh, it's probably good timing that we don't have any listener questions. So, uh, enjoy part two of Trevor's chat with Judy Ann and we'll, we'll catch you on the other side. Was on Sanford and Son. <laughs> it, it almost sounded like you were so like content raising the family that you were drifting away from acting. But no, the the as long as it no, I no, I was not drifting away. I knew I could do both. I don't know how I knew I knew that I could do both. 
but I did. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we've talked to a lot of um, new mothers on the, on the show who are also actresses, and they have stories about hauling their kids along to auditions oh, no, and I giving them to strangers that. in the waiting room. No, that would never happen. No. So how did you manage that, uh, having a small children, a small child and, well, and we, pursuing we, a career? We had a, a nanny. Okay. So it didn't, and it oh, was... So a total non-issue. Yeah, and I wasn't going out every day. <laughs> no, so, I know, it was it was lovely. I mean, it, the, the, the first show, I think, as I said, was uh, Sanford and stuff. And I, I would work, you know, but it was not anything that was going to take me away. I never had to... Oh, yes, I did. I had to go up to San Francisco for the streets of San Francisco with Michael Douglas. That was great. Um, but nothing that was going to, you know, tear apart my family. That was the priority. And also, this was a time during exploitation films, too. This mm, was okay. that era. So tell us about that. Tell us about exploitation film uh, era. Oh, it was huge with African-American actors. Uh, they were, these films were made were made inexpensively compared to the whole studio system. There was a lot of work, but there were, there were complaints about it. In fact, um, uh, we became a party to a group that was objecting to some of these films. Can you, just, just for our audience, define what an exploitation film is? Well... <laughs> Basically, the the plots are pretty loose. They're pretty, and it all sort of uh, it's it's guns and you know bad guys, and it sounds like a regular movie, doesn't it? Uh, uh, but there was a, often a lot of nudity, okay. and um, but they were inexpensive, and they they did profile and enhance the careers of some people. You know, and um, technically, my husband wrote one. No, technically, it was called Melinda. And it had those elements, but it had more of a text. It had, it wasn't just uh, gratuitous. Right. So that All made a, a big, and, and I had a role in it um, as uh, the secretary to this DJ. But I would, because of my children, I would I would never consider doing nudity. Right. And never. So, that, I mean, that just, I just you know I knew one day they'd grow up. I don't want them to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I think they uh, appreciate. Yeah, that. I was going to say, as a as a you know a young person, I would not want to see my no. parents uh, no. in the nude on screen. Uh, even at 36 years old, I'm not into that. So, um, <laughs> so probably how, especially now. especially now. Uh, and how long till things started to pick up for you? I mean, you had a few of these exploitation. This no, era, no. Oh yes, this era was 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 well, dominant. I, yes, it was. I don't remember. What does my resume say? Um, <laughs> I just I just noticed that your first your first screen credit was in '68, I think, and then starting. That, in oh like, well, that was in no, actually in New York. Got it. Okay. That was. Uh, oh, that's an interesting story. Um, it was a television show that my husband wrote also. 
that Robert Hooks, who was one of the founders of the Negro Ensemble Company, was starring in. He was the uh, producing director. It was also, I got this role as a barmaid, okay? <laughs> that was the only, I think that's the only role I've ever had that didn't have a name, barmaid. <laughs> but at any rate, um, uh, it was also Al Pacino's debut television. Really? So you got to be in Al Pacino's debut TV in in the show. I didn't work with it, yeah, I know. But he was, it, but that was his debut. Wow. So it looks like I've got your IMDb pulled up here. It looks like, uh, yeah, NYPD in 1968, that was it. Mm-hmm. then uh, starting in 1971, and then 72, 73, 73, 78. So you, it looks like the 70s were when things really started to gain some momentum for you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. T- was that just uh, your experience of that? Was that just that like... was my experience because there were only like uh, four of us here. Four, four of who? Four actresses. No, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> there weren't very many African American uh, actors. I mean, the pool, like the pool now, mm-hmm. amazing. It's amazing the, the talented young women there are. Yeah. Hi, they're just wonderful, and uh, but it, the pool was small. So it was. It was I almost, mean, everybody kind of knew everybody. Yeah, yeah. It was you almost know? like you. Your timing was perfect. It was perfect. It was. It was. It was perfect for me for the time I wanted it to be because it was everything I had imagined, and um, and when my well, when my husband came, uh, he met. He came before us to get us settled in and whatnot. He associated with a lot of people that I had admired as a youngster. My husband was, well, he was considerably older than I was. And um, Sammy Davis. Uh, (laughs) One day, we would go over to his house for parties. And in fact, he had to get my husband out of jail. (laughs) Sammy Davis? Yes. Because, and this was before I arrived here. I was back in Cleveland with Christian. Okay, while Lonnie was arranging things here. And he had been invited to a party at Sammy Davis's. And he got lost in Beverly Hills and was driving around and trying to figure out where it was. And he was stopped by the police. And they immediately arrested him. Your husband? Yes. Just because he seemed, what, suspicious? Because he was black and driving around in Beverly Hills. Wow. Looking. Uh Uh-huh. He was taken to jail. So he called Sammy. And Sammy had his his lawyer go there and get him out. Wow. Wow. So, you know, in a way, things haven't changed a lot. They haven't changed a lot at all. Yeah. But I, I would, I would have occasion on various things to meet a, a lot of people I admired, um, Liza Minnelli and Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> party. Sure, but and then and I was staring at her. <laughs> like, but like like everybody else in the room. Oh, no, yeah. no, they weren't staring. I'm the one. Oh, you were you were ogling. <laughs> and she gave me 
they'll look as if they'll say, what the hell are you looking at? Right. <laughs> and uh, I remember also on a flight we where we went somewhere and we were coming back and Christian, again, was the baby and Goldie Hawn was on that flight and she insisted that she hold him for mm. landing. Goldie Hawn insisted Gold. she hold your son yes. on a plane landing. Yes, my son Christian, who is now 47. <laughs> wow. Yes. He was an adorable baby. So it, I don't so it was like a it was like a wonderland for me. It, it almost sounds like just because one of the things we like to do on the show is sort of if as much as we can deconstruct the success of someone who's enjoyed a lot of success in their career. Would you say that if you had been five years earlier or five or ten years later, you may not have enjoyed the same environment that that maybe perhaps contributed to some of the success that you enjoyed? Or would you say, no, that's completely, doesn't matter at all, I was going to make it no matter what? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that at all. Once I got to know what California was like, and for some of the people who were here, young people, okay, if I had, I, the angels were looking out for me, that I made that move to New York. Because I firmly believe that there was, you know, I was really naive, really, to the world. Really. Because I went from one safe harbor to another safe harbor to another safe harbor. If I had just taken myself and gone to California, I honestly believe I would be dead. Dead? Dead. Because I know of too many cases of really beautiful, talented women. One of the first stories I heard of a young actress once we did move here was that she just gave up and walked into the ocean. Wow, so not necessarily taking advantage of or disappearing, but killing themselves. Yes, and because they couldn't, they weren't able to. I mean, it was still, it was still hard. And even if you read the stories of people who were very successful, um, um, black actresses, it was not easy. Yeah. It was not easy. It was hurtful. Well, the the kind of roles that that um, you remember playing, and that maybe some of your peers in the industry played, did those feel restrictive in some way, or did you feel like you were playing to a specific archetype that wasn't representative of you, that was profiling you essentially? A lot of them didn't have enough depth. Yeah, you know, the, a lot of them just simply did not have enough depth. Like, we need this quote-unquote character here, so just... And that's a big part of show business. Well, that's why That's why I had, really, I had the utmost respect for uh, for my husband's work because he, he wrote uh, the film Sounder, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. He and... He was the first African-American man to be nominated for writing uh, for an Academy Award and it was the same time Suzanne DePass was um, the first woman to uh, be nominated that same year 
the year of the Godfather, mind you. And hers was four. What was uh, that film? Uh, well, at any rate. So, Lady Sings the Blues, yes. Okay. And um, by then, I mean, like, Billy was a friend of ours from New York. And he was here, and this—that's the film that more or less made him. Hmm. I mean, he was working, but that was, you know. Mm-hmm. So, doing going to things like the Academy Awards. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you gotta remember, <laughs> my twenty. Yeah, I was gonna ask. Can you trace your success back to a big break or a specific moment of of of? Understanding or enlightenment or some fortuitous thing? The best thing thing that happened to me in my career was to be married to a mature man. Drop the the mic, man. (laughs) Wow. How how so? How so? Well, because I learned a lot from him. He was wiser. That was what saved me. So, without him in your life, do you feel that you would have enjoyed any success whatsoever? Oh, yeah, I think I would have, but I think it would have been the wrong kind. Huh. What do you mean by the wrong kind? Where where too much comes to you too soon that you're not prepared to handle. Right. You're not prepared and, then, and you can easily become a victim. Mm. Have you seen that happen yes. to a lot of your peers and, and people, these actors these days who are young? I've seen it happen to pe- people who have been peers who are, you wouldn't know anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, it's a tough business. Yeah. It's not all sparkly, blah, 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 blah. No, it's not like that. What, what would you say is the toughest part for you, or has been historically, or perhaps still is? The hardest part is the um, supposition and the uh, the supposition that if you are an African American woman, you are all like this, being put into a slot, you know, and assumptions are made. That's why it's wonderful. To see some of these films these days where there is more exploration of character and the diversity of characters, mm-hmm. you know, that not cookie con- cutters, you know, it's, it just has more, it, the, uh, the ability to do things that are more challenging. Mm-hmm. The, there's a, a challenge at this point in my life because you're either to this, to that, to the other. Oh, no, she doesn't look old enough. Or, oh, no, no, she's too old. Uh, <laughs> the mm-hmm. ageism thing. And um, it just... The, those are challenges. And um, I, I've always been creative, actually. I mean, I can be creative setting a table, which I love to do because I don't like to cook. Uh, <laughs> that's can, how you get out of it, huh? That's, also, I, the table. <laughs> and I, I am very creative in, in my way, you know, but, and I enjoy it. 
I mean, even though I was working, it was um, Robert Greenwald. Yes. Wonderful director. And um, that, I did that play on Broadway in the 70s. So that, and that was the first time I went back to New York. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but let me just tell you how I was creative also. The children were older. Uh, Lonnie Christine was born. We moved to Valley Vista in Sherman Oaks. And I started working with actors in prison, which Robert Greenwald was involved with. Um, actors in prison. prison. So exactly. a- actors who had committed some sort of crime or no, felony. No, 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 no. No, this no. is something else. Uh, this I just was, want to be clear on that. This was, these, this was, and Susan Lowenberg, who has been a long-term friend of mine, of L.A. Theater Works, was involved in it. And when I was on Broadway with him, see, now this is how naive I was, uh, <laughs> I would say... You know, Robert, I think maybe in this scene you should. <laughs> it, he, he, he was the director. That's so, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think he's mm-hmm. point. And at the it's end, very gracious of him. It was very gracious. At the end of it, he said, you know, I think you have a director's eye. Hey. He said, I think you should do something about that. He is the first person to ever encourage me to direct. So that in the seven days, right, when I'm here, he suggests that I become part of this group. And I taught classes and with uh, Jonathan Banks mm-hmm. <laughs> at Terminal Island Penitentiary. So when you say actors in prison, this is literally they we, we prisoners who of became the, actors in prison or well they were gonna let them out. Well, no, I, I guess I, these weren't these weren't like actors who then did something wrong and then got thrown in jail. No, no, these no, are, no. These are inmates who embraced some of them were actors, but <laughs> but at any rate, no. Gotcha. No, okay, no. I just wanted to be so completely the, clear. The whole purpose was to work with them. Yeah. And to have classes and to do plays. And the first play I directed, and I am telling you it was fabulous, was Ceremonies in Dark Old Men in Terminal Island Penitentiary. Those uh, actors were unbelievable. What, what is it that made them so um, accepting of the work? They would were, you say? Because, well, first of all, they connected with the thematically with the play, but the fact that you would be coming there and calling upon them to do something artistic and express themselves, I, it was an incredible experience. I loved it, of course. So we were told, don't give them your phone number. Everyone is innocent in there. Every last one didn't do it. Okay, they're going to tell you that. And, and uh, they were all wonderful. They talk about dedicated. They not only knew their own lines, they knew everybody else's lines. I mean, their work ethic was formidable. It mm-hmm. really was. Now, do you think that was because they had not a lot of other things competing for their time or was it because they're they're just it energized them it 
yeah. energized them. They wanted to do it. Of course, we had to bring in two women <laughs> to play the female role. It, it, but it went wonderfully. Wow. They were, I mean, because they, it was, there are uh, aspects of it in the play that deal with things they knew. Mm-hmm. So it was terribly rewarding. And how long did you do that? Did you work with the actress in prison? Uh, I, I guess a couple of years because it turned into something else. Uh, it, it turned into LA Theater Works. Okay. Uh, and we did readings for radio. I've been doing that for years. And directing. I just directed a piece called Seven. Um, uh, the one that I really loved was one I did before that, which was with Charlie Robinson and uh, Whipping Man. Okay. Hmm. I loved it. I loved it, and it's combining all of the, you know, theater. With radio, I mean, it's a real challenge. Hmm. But I've done several of those. At any rate, what was your original question? <laughs> I, you know, I do digress. No, it's it's great because it's it's so interesting to hear that you had this sort of through line of like, I am committed to this art form. I'm not going to be derailed from this journey. No. And yet, you were able to take sort of various sort of side paths on the creative journey. So you oh, weren't yeah. specifically committed to, I'm going to be a Broadway actress. It was like, I'm an actress who also writes and directs. Right. Well, that's, that's what stimulated the, the writing and the directing. But being on Broadway, I didn't tell you about that, like you care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was incredible. Right. But it was also incredible because... Of the subject matter. I mean, I was portraying Coretta King. Yeah. And I had to spend time with her. And she was wonderful. She, the woman was like steel. I bet. I have, I have read, I'm sorry to cut you off. I've read, I've read so much about her character as a human being. Oh, yeah. Especially with regards to some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s shortcomings, perceived, you know, reported shortcomings. I don't Mm -hmm. know what's been Mm -hmm. exaggerated and what hasn't, but Mm -hmm. I think she's... Perhaps the real hero. Oh, she the the woman behind the man. Well, behind every great man, there is a greater woman. No, <laughs> I, I would just for the record, as the only man in the room, I, I would not dispute that. Clearly, there is. But you know, she was she she was extraordinary, and and meeting with her and spending time with her, I had to spend time with her. And fortunately, she was very fond of my husband. She was very, very fond of him. And and so I was able to sit with her and get her tone, believe it or not, with his voice. I have, like, four octaves. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, I came here because I was impelled to come. Hmm. I came because this is where my husband would have wanted me to be. Uh, so it was in that voice, mm. not the Mickey Mouse. Because um, I know that you also, I've written down a few notes on you here, um, that you also, in 2005, were awarded the NAACP Trailblazer Award. Mm-hmm. That was part of the, as being part of the Negro Ensemble Company. Gotcha. The okay. original company. Okay. 
And uh, but let me. You do you want to finish it? Finish the rest of it after after the the prison. The, the question. Okay. Yeah. As I, I continue, hear... I continue to work, and then I was I started writing, and then uh, eventually I decided to apply for. Um, uh, AFI's um, directing workshop for women, and Robert Greenwald was one of the first recommendations. And I was received into that, and I did my first film. And that was called um, In God. (laughs) (laughs) No, the first film that I ever did was called Behind God's Back, and starring. Bridges, mm. and it was an extraordinary experience. I had uh, uh, great cinematography, and I felt uh, 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 DP, uh, who is now passed away, but he was he was brilliant, and I I fell in love with with film, not being on film, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, I, it was some time before, after that, that I decided to do another short. It was only relatively recently. Um, I had directed a play, because I do direct quite a few plays. Uh, a play, a short play for the Roby Theater, a two-character piece that took place in a cemetery. And it was an interesting piece. It was one of two shorts that I was directing. But I kept saying the whole time, this is not a play. It is not a play. It talks about things that don't happen on the stage. It implies things that aren't going on the stage. And and it was never established what country it was in. It said in, in a Latin American country. Two characters in a cemetery. So this isn't a play. Okay, we did it. I said, I'm going to make a film of this. Because it begs of a film. Hmm. And fortunately, my lead um, actor, Castelo Guerra, was from Argentina. And he began to tell me the history of Argentina and the Dirty War. Hmm. And I fell in love with the concept. And now, there was nothing like that mentioned, but there was mention of torture in this cemetery where this woman was uh, approached by the very man who had tortured her husband, and she was visiting his gravesite. That's all there was. Hmm. And I there's there's a film in it. There's a film. There's a film. And Costello also it, uh, made me conscious of the bandoneon, which is the universal instrument of Argentina. So I wrote this film called A Private Act. That was the name of the play. I got the rights from the author. He said, right ahead. And... I loved every minute, and that is the last film project that uh, I worked. Looking forward, your focus is now. I'm always towards, looking forward. We're more towards uh, directing. If I'm inspired to do it, I do things based on passion, hmm. not you know, offer or somebody says, "Oh, you do you want to do?" No, I actually don't. Uh, if I am 
if I feel passion, I'm fortunate that I can do that. That I can work based on passion. Have you in the past turned things down that you weren't passionate about? Yes. Because that some of the advice that a lot of newer actors get is like do everything, do as much as you well, can. Well, I'm not a young actor anymore. Right. So yeah, I guess what I'm saying this is a recent philosophy, or is this it's something no, that's guided you? Of course, it's it's, a, it's, a, it's more recent. But I do think I don't think they, they tell people to accept everything. Don't they want to see that it works for them? I mean, when you're just starting out and you're meeting people well, and building a body so, of work, yeah. some yeah, of the predominant, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we take obviously... Everything. They, they, they just say, take everything? Okay, well, well not, I... Not, you know, not, not everything, but like, you know, say yes more often than you say no because you don't, you can't, you're not at a place in your career where you can afford to be picky, I think yeah. is, the, is the idea. And that once you get to a certain point, you can afford to say, no, thank you. Yeah, well, I think things that, that, that aren't appropriate for me... Yeah. You know, uh, what ticks me off is so often I see things that would be appropriate for me. Uh-huh. Uh, but at any rate, um, hmm. no, I'm, I'm, um, I think I have had a blessed career and life. I really do. I have no, I have no gripes. Hmm. I want to touch on one thing before we get to our final two questions that is not necessarily related to your career, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it's informed your work in your life, and that is that you are a breast cancer survivor. Yes, I am. So many people that I know who have been diagnosed mm-hmm. with a terminal or a life-threatening illness oh, yes. report on the life-changing... It was totally par- like the life-changing. Can you tell us uh, any revelations you had? <sighs> Uh, it uh, yes, I had a lot of revelations. I don't know that you have time to hear this. Maybe how it informed your work, how you approach your your creative work. It informed my entire spiritual life. I had to go uh, back to Cleveland to get an award. I was being enrolled in the Shaker Heights High. Um, Please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. Take your time. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's go back. I'm sorry. Uh, I was being. uh, I was invited back to Shaker Heights High for the uh, Hall of Fame award, right next to Paul Newman. (laughs) His placard. My placard is right next to Paul Newman. At any rate, and while I was there, I was going to go visit down in Southern Ohio. My oldest living relative, who's my uncle, my father's brother. My mother and father had long passed. I had to drive down there. And it's a complicated road, and I'm not the best driver. But I got down there on all those winding roads, saw him, because I knew he wouldn't have long, and I wanted to see him. And I was driving back to catch the plane back to California. And I stopped at this bench that overlooks a river in Ohio. And I sat down just to rest and remember, because the last time I'd been on those roads was with my parents. Very safe. Very safe. You know, it was great. But this was precarious this time for me, because I was alone. And I sat on that bench, and all of a sudden, I felt like, 
my mother and father were on either side of me. I felt it just as sure as I, and I started to cry. I, it, it was so deep a feeling, I got off and took a photograph of the bench because I said, that was in the days when you had to develop film, that when this is developed, I'm going to see them on that bench. I'm, I know they're there. I came back home, I did that, you know, went on with my life, worked, and by then I was married to my second husband. I mean, we've been married twice, 25 years. But it <laughs> at any rate. And I went to my doctor for a checkup. And the checkup, you know, my you know, annual man, mammogram, and then I was called and... Um, they said there were some issues, you know, and so I went in, and then I had to uh, speak to another doctor, and he said, on this particular day, he said, you have, uh, we, we've found something, and you have breast cancer. And I happened to look at the date. The date he told me was exactly a year from that same Tuesday a year before when I felt my parents on either side of me. And I somehow knew that was no accident. They were with me then and they were going to be with me now on this journey. I did not I did not fear anything once I looked at those dates. My my children, my husband was wonderful to me. John was amazing. He was amazing. He kept saying, We have cancer. I said, No, I I have it. And I had a um, I had one, a kind that was a little more difficult. At any rate, I, it changed my life so much. And the first day of chemo, I had kept a little diary that has little sayings on it. The first day of chemo, it said, this is the first day of the rest of your life. Those are not accidents. Mm -hmm. Those are not accidents. And I knew I would be able to do it. Then there were times they didn't want to give me the chemo because African-American people often have low white cell counts. And they were, were afraid that I would just, you know... I insisted. I did it. And when, it was done, when I was done with the, uh, the, um, the infusions... I auditioned for a play up north, got the role, did radiation while I was doing a play. Wow. It was an incredible experience that made me a more <laughs> grateful. I'm grateful. Hmm. I'm grateful, and life is precious. And there, we are not just this. We are spiritual beings. And when you can 
have the joy of connecting to that, it changes you. Hmm. And it changes you for the good. Wow. I can't think of a better way to move, move to the end of the, uh, the conversation. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate that very much. I, I've lost people to cancer and it's, you know, it's hard to see. So I, I appreciate you sharing, talking about that so candidly and how it changed you and, and knowing that you could make it through and it's yeah. wonderful. Uh, so we have two questions we like to ask all our guests Yes. as we wrap up. And the first one is, do you feel that this career path, this life journey chose you or that you chose it? I think I scratched it on its back and said, okay, okay. <laughs> I think I annoyed it enough. <laughs> so it just rolled over and said, all right, all right, Okay, right. okay. <laughs> So a little bit of both. Yeah. 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 Great. And then uh, the last question, and you may have answered this uh, when you talked about meeting a, a wise, mature man, uh, but if you had one nugget of advice that you could pass along to another actor on this journey, or not even an actor, another creative person, what would that one nugget of advice be? That you should always know your own value. Anything that will disturb your sense of dignity, be wary of. Embrace every moment, honor your creativity, and know that artists are heroes because they hold up mirrors to the world. In any art form, that's what they do. And it is a noble profession. Hmm. Noble is a great word for <laughs> what I think artists do. Judy Ann, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, for inviting us into your home. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Oh, well, it was it was lovely. To, you see, I like to talk, you know, seriously, it is so grasped too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Hey folks, welcome back to the bookends. Hope you enjoyed part two of Trevor's chat with Judy Ann. I am once again at the disadvantage of having not heard this yet, but excited to do so. Trevor, do you have any sort of uh, debriefing uh, points that you'd like to make before we move on? Nothing specific, but I do want to say, and this might just be because this has been sort of uh, in my consciousness lately, is it just her mindset? I, I think I harped on this last episode. Her mindset is so impressive to me. And I find more and more as I meet people who are enjoying consistent success and people who are enjoying consistent happiness and abundance, it's because the thought that things might not work out in their favor is something that they just... they. If they allow it into their minds, it's only for like the briefest of moments and then they condition their minds, they summon the enthusiasm they need and they just kind of push it out and they make room for the positive thoughts, the images and visualizations of success. And it's just, it's in my world lately because it's something I recognize 
when I do it, when I make the time and work on the habit and practice, you know, pushing the bad shit out of my mind and focusing on the good shit that I want to create, my life just tends to work a lot better. Everything works better. Everything. And when I get lazy and my mind becomes overgrown with weeds, to paraphrase Napoleon, Napoleon Hill, uh, things don't work. Things fall apart. And I just, I loved sitting across from Judy Ann because she just has uh, a mind like steel and a mind like water. So what I mean by that is a mind like steel, like she's just, she, she has conviction. She's committed. She, she knows what she, all her life she's known, like this is happening. There's no argument. Like there's no other possibility. It's happening and I'm going to keep doing it. And, and it's just so, it was so effortless to hear her tell her story of her journey and how effortless it seemed in her telling. I, I'm sure it took work and she had dark nights of the soul, but the the commitment was was something that never wavered it was never a question in her mind of whether or not she was going to see it through and then secondly when i say mind like water that's something i kind of have stolen from david allen's getting things done philosophy and that idea is that you're, you 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 develop your mind to the point where it responds appropriately to no matter what is thrown at it so you throw a little pebble into the water and it just kind of handles the pebble and it doesn't go crazy and make huge waves and stuff. You throw a big boulder in it, it makes room for the boulder and then it settles back. And then David always says this, it always cracks me up. He says, and the water doesn't tense up when it sees the pebble coming. <laughs> you know, so it's like mind like water is a really powerful concept. And I think Judy pebble, Ann, pebble, pebble, pebble. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Uh, I think I think Judy Ann really uh, embodies that very, very beautifully. So uh, mind like steel, mind like water and just that belief, that self-confidence, that conviction. Mm, awesome. Was so inspired to hear her journey and sit across from her and um very happy to be sharing it with with the world rad yeah rad yeah. love it thank so, you sir yeah so uh your pick of the week is something that i have been meaning to look into i read the sort of cliff's notes version of it and i've been thinking about picking up the whole thing just to kind of get the full monty with it uh tell us about this journey that this this resource is kicking off for you yeah, well, I, I, first of all, I would recommend the audiobook because. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because it's only like four hours, I think. Yeah, uh, it's a short, uh, little, long, little book. pretty short. It's uh, we got it on Audible, and then you can listen to it while you're doing what's in the book. So my pick of the week is the life changing magic of tidying up by a woman named Marie Kondo, uh, who uh, combined her two names and into making something called what she calls the Kanmari. Kan, kan, Kanmari method, um, which is a method of um, essentially getting your what she calls getting your house in order, which is uh, ironically a phrase that I've been using for um, a while off and on. Uh, just something I've been feeling for about a year now or so, like wanting to feel more order in my uh, life, in my clutter, in my belongings. Um, in order to create more order in um, in <clears throat> the rest of my life, uh, in other domains of my life. Um, and so uh, we started. Uh, Jasmine and I literally took an entire day, uh, both took the day off from work, and and started working on it. And, and step one is, is – there's really only two steps. Uh, step one is uh, uh, discarding, and step two is deciding where to put things. Mm. Um isn't there there's a there's a piece of it too where you kind of 
maybe you're about to say this, so I shouldn't cut you off, but you, you hold <laughs> the, you hold the object and you, you ask yourself, does this spark joy? And if it no longer sparks joy, you consciously sort of thank it for its service in your life and you release it, which seems a little, little quirky when you just hear about it, like, you know, objectively like this. But I think the practice of actually doing it is, is quite powerful. Yeah, it is. It is very powerful. And it's in it. And it is. Um, I mean, she's Japanese, so it is a it, it is a very sort of Eastern um, uh, philosophy, uh, very um uh, some what some people call new age, but is actually ancient <laughs> philosophy. Um, it is, it, yeah, that's part of the discard uh, step. And um, it, 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 if if everything in the universe has energy, um, communicating with the uh, material in your life is super powerful, and it also um, connects you to your to your to your things in a in a way that like. I had never experienced before, you know, cause I was getting, I was getting rid of things that I've had for years. Right. And it's not that they don't spark joy, but they're just not either useful or functional or, or they don't spark joy or whatever it is. But even if they don't spark joy, it, it, it's like, <clears throat> thank you for, you know, teaching me that this doesn't spark joy. Hmm. Thank you for your services while I used you. Uh, thank you for, you know, and so you, you have, cause you have, look, you have a relationship with everything that you own or everything that's in your house, whether you are conscious of it or not. It, it reminds me of Trevor, you're when you say, um, everyone has a morning routine, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like whether they're conscious of that morning routine or not, like you have a morning routine. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very similar to that. You have a relationship with every item in your possession, in your home, whether you are conscious of that relationship or not. So this is just about bringing awareness to that relationship. Uh, and it is powerful, man. And and we, uh, you know, you're supposed to start with clothes and you move on to books. And we got through uh, most of those things. Um, and I have, I have very few items left. Everything that I have sparks joy. Our car is full of, uh, I want to say, eight bags in a box that are all going to be going to the National Council for Jewish Women. Mm. Um, it is, um, it's a powerful process, and and we're not quite through it yet. But I'm already feeling uh, lighter. I'm already feeling more um, purposeful when it comes to the things that are here. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's been really great to, like I said, listen to the book while you're actually in the process of doing it. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And, it, and you know, it's been going around, like I'm, I'm hearing, uh, Ben Whitehair and I were talking about this while we were hiking in Big Bear We came up for, uh, you know, Jasmine's birthday. We, you know, he brought the book up and he and Gadali and I were, were kind of talking about it. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's hard to describe in it's hard to describe in in terms of feeling uh, unless you actually go through it yourself. So I yeah. would just I can't recommend it enough. Um, it's not about I think that people hear about this and they get they tense up before the pebble hits the water first of all and they get uh, a little scared like oh is is she gonna make you know, like she's gonna make me throw everything that i love away or like i don't feel like doing the work or putting in the work look she acknowledges that in most cases it's a six-month process 
Mm-hmm. It's not something you do in a day. So when we got to the end of that day, we were exhausted, but we had gotten through a lot and <clears throat> we felt like, okay, it's the beginning, as you said, Trevor, the beginning of a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to, to the rest of that journey. And we have in the calendar, we have days sort of set aside over the course of the next month or two, um, for continuing, um, and, uh, and you know, uh, she talks about like leaving it, leaving space for other things to fill, to fill that space. Because if you're, if your space is so cluttered with things that don't spark joy, you're not leaving space for things that do. Hmm. Um, yeah. and I came across things that like I needed to buy, for instance, for back, like I, for backpacking, there's a couple like I needed duct tape and, um, and some Velcro and like all this, like things started appearing. I'm like, Oh, du- we have duct tape. I didn't know we had duct tape. <laughs> I was going to buy duct tape. Yeah. We have duct tape. Yeah. We have Velcro. Where did these Velcro strips come from? We had Velcro. Yeah. They were just over. Oh my God. So anyway, hmm. uh, the life changing magic of tidying up. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I've heard such good things, uh, from a lot of like, people that I follow online, including like Olympic swimmers and stuff. They're like this book. Oh my God. And, uh, I think I've said this recently on the show, but I know so many people who swear by like, not even the life changing, but the life of uh, maybe, I don't know the opportunity that just flows into their lives after they empty all the crap out that was tying up all that psychic energy. So many people have told me you want a new relationship. You want a new job. You want a new income stream. You want to feel freedom. Clean out your closet, clean your closet, clean your room, (laughs) just do it. And like, you'll be amazed that you'll go out into the world. And suddenly the universe is like, Hey, there's an empty bucket there. Boom. (laughs) Here you go. See your mom was just trying to set you up for the rest of your life by telling you to go clean your room. Yeah. Just trying to set you up for the rest of your life. That's all she was trying to do. No big deal. Uh, Mm. All right. That's enough of that. What's your pick of the week, man? Uh, I'll keep it short. It is a book that many of you have probably heard of. It was made into a film not too long ago, 10 years ago, uh, called Into the Wild. The book is by John Krakauer, and it's about uh, a kid named Christopher McCandless, who in a sort of strangely time-honored tradition went off into the wilderness to basically live by himself, to live off the land and to just be one with nature and reject society, reject all the the kind of stuff that he saw in the world is completely, you know, total bullshit. And he just went to go kind of go find himself. And um, I started this book years ago and just couldn't really get into it. And then I tried to watch the movie a year or two ago and I couldn't get into the movie. And I guess I just wasn't ready for it because this time around when I picked up the book, I finished it in two days. It was so unbelievably compelling and the writing is so sharp and so tight and it's, and so thoroughly journalistic, but with such a, uh, um, a compassionate emotional and I thought, well-rounded um perspective on this whole thing that i i was just i was blown away by it i thoroughly enjoyed every single page and uh it's interesting because it really cut the story of this kid kind of going off completely quote-unquote ill-prepared into the wilderness sparks a lot of um strong opinions in people a lot of people and he documents this in the book, the author documents this. A lot of people were like, this kid's an idiot. He's so arrogant. Like, what the hell is he thinking? Of course he was going to, spoiler alert, he dies. Uh, of course he's going to die. 
that's not a spoiler. That's like right in the beginning of the book. Uh, of course he's going to die. Like, what was he thinking? Stupid, stupid, stupid. And then other people are like, God, I wish I could do that. Uh, he met an unfortunate end, but how many people have done this and not had a problem at all? And I'm thinking specifically of somebody like Cheryl Strayed, who wrote that book wild that uh, a wonderful yeah. podcast listener sent to me a few months ago. That was, uh, yeah, it was a compelling read. I, I liked this better, but, um, I also just might be a better audience for it. Anyway, uh, read the book if it interests you at all and make sure you pick up the most recent edition that you possibly can because in the more recent editions there's new discoveries about how he died that will completely reframe how you see his journey really really fascinating stuff i'm so glad i got it from the library so i i got it on my kindle i automatically got the most recent copy and and uh, he talked about how in previous versions of the book he came to one conclusion, but in subsequent years working with different scientists and whatnot, he came to a completely different conclusion and basically changed the face of this very small niche of science based on his findings. Uh, really, really interesting. So check it out. Into the Wild by John Krakauer. There's a, a link on our website. Just make sure you look for the most recent edition. I think it was like 2012 or 2014 maybe. Uh, but if you get it from the library, you'll get the most recent one on your Kindle if you do it that way. That's what I did. Nice. Yeah, there was. I remember all the um, the sort of controversy around him and uh, and and the and the new discoveries of um, what was it? There was something about like mustard seeds or something like that. I remember reading about yeah. all this. Yeah, potato seeds um, actually. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay. So anyway, cool. Well, <clears throat> I think it's hilarious that I'm. Uh, doing all this research and gearing up for all these uh, backpacking trips and, and you beat me to this book <laughs> I thought it's on my you... list this one and wild are both on my list uh, I just I'm reading some other stuff mm. right now but I'm excited to get to them I thought of you many times while reading this book there's a, a few chapters where the author just basically talks about his own journeys because he's very much a wilderness guy and he you know when he was younger he went out solo and went to hike mountains and do these things and he he's a great writer and some of these these stories he tells about you know basically thinking this might be the end of his life because he screwed up so badly or whatever it's just really edge of your seat like compelling stuff and the way he describes being in nature and just being a victim of nature and it oh it's beautiful I, i'm excited to read more of his work because this book was five stars hands down five out of five awesome and yeah well, i think thanks. yeah i think you'll like it aj I'm excited to read it. So uh, that is the life-changing magic of tidying up a uh, life-changing book by Marie Kondo and Into the Wild by John Krakauer. All right. Well, today's episode of Inside Acting was produced and hosted by yours truly, A.J. Meyer, and of course, Trevor Algat. Jen Levin is our production coordinator. Gadali Gubrick is our marketing and web director. Deborah Smith is our community manager. Grace Gordon is our director of public relations. And Fern Lim designed our logo. Trevor Algat edited and mixed today's episode and composed our theme and interview music. You can sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our episodes at our website, InsideActing.net. You can also find us on social media and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute... Go ahead and leave us a nice positive review on iTunes if you enjoy the show. It really helps us a lot. Special thanks to our sponsors, Rehearsal Pro and VO2GoGo. And thanks to you, our listeners. 
You can visit our website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, get links to everything we talked about on this episode, and if you'd like, support the continued production of the show with either a one-time financial contribution or an ongoing contribution as part of our membership. Visit InsideActing.net to learn more and show us some love. And that does it for episode 284 of Inside Acting. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, mind like steel, mind like water. (laughs) 